Welcome, uh, Tish. You asked us to make this funny today. <laughs> so we're going to try. I have a, I have a first name as well. We're going to try our best. I know, but the last time I called you David, you yelled at me. No, Dave. Dave. Dave Tish. So here's one of the things that I really appreciate you about you, Dave Tish, is that every single event we've ever been to, you walk me into a corner. You ask if we can just stay in the corner because you don't want to talk to anybody else at the event. And while I do appreciate that time with you, I think of you as like a very social creature. So, so why do you, why do you do that? It's a defense mechanism. Is this, this is like what we're going to post and publish or, or... <laughs> we can edit all this out, but I want to know. I'm just want, like, this is a, this is a strong opener. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, you know, it matters what event I think, um, I think, I think. Our job inherently as a venture capitalist is to meet new people on a recurring basis and in many ways ramp up a relationship in a matter of minutes because in, and I'm sure we'll touch on this, right, in the market of the past couple of years, you have about 11 minutes to make a decision on a new investment. And so in that 11 minutes, you have to decide if, you like somebody, you have to decide if you like what they're working on and you have to convince them to like you. And so the job is to consistently network, consistently meet people. And we've been doing this for a long time. So I started uh, investing in like 2009. And so 14 years of making new relationships and the business is inherently mathematically about saying no. So the majority of conversations, relationships that you start, you end with a rejection, which is pretty intense emotionally, right? It's like a, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a big um, ramp up and then cliff a lot of the time, um, because not every relationship is going to be that ten-year journey of a founder and an investor or, um, you know, a a company. And so uh, I think sometimes it's nice to have a break. And so when you get into a room (laughs) with a bunch of other VCs, I don't need to go and make that 11 minute relationship come to fruition. We all sort of can breathe. And so I just want to talk to you, Nick. So Tish, we we met a very long time ago. Do you want to tell the the origin story of of our meeting? I was a no. By on the way. origins podcast. I was a no for you. Uh, Nick, you you applied to our first. So in, in 2010, uh, I launched the Techstars program in New York um, and we opened up applications and you were amongst the applicants and uh, you bubbled up from. I got an interview. Uh, the thousand, I think we probably had 1,200 applicants to that first program uh, and we interviewed probably about three, 400 of them. So uh, you made that first cut. And I think you made uh, the second cut and we got to meet you in person um, and get got to know you. And um, uh, you were working on a, a startup at the time. And uh, I think it, it was a moment in time startup in that uh, I don't think you continued on that journey. And 
ended up as a VC pretty quickly after that, but that was our uh, first opportunity to, to get to know each other. And I hold it against you to this day. Actually, okay. you, you did me, you gave me a gift. You gave me a gift. If you had I said yes, actually, I, I could have worked on that thing for years. I assume so I that you. there's a lot of people that hold. It's it's a it's an interesting job because on on the other side, you have founders who have a dream, who are excited and and passionate and hopeful when they tell you their dream that you're gonna like it and you're gonna say. Not only do I like it, I love it. Here's money. Let's go. And when you're saying no, most of the time, you're sort of this dream killer in, in some way. And hopefully every founder that we say no to finds somebody that does believe in it and gets to go out and, and build that. But I think there's a, a lot of responsibility to be respectful to the entrepreneur on the other side of, of the conversation because they're attached to what they're talking to you about in such a way that they want to go and spend a good chunk of their life trying to build it. And I, you know, I think over the, the past decade plus, um, when you say no so many times, A, you're going to be wrong a lot, a ton. And B, yeah. um, you have to do it with kindness because you don't want to, you don't want to make somebody, uh, sort of stop working on the thing they're passionate about working on. And I, I think it comes with a lot of responsibility to um, appreciate the founder side of this more so than the investor side of it. Although honestly, just to, just to play the counterpart, I got a lot of negative feedback on that first startup and, and it was useful and, and they actually encouraged me to stop working on that. And I actually, I think, I ended up finding ways to spend my time in much more useful ways. So I also actually appreciated a lot of the clear no's. And I think there would have been a massive opportunity cost of me continuing to work on that. It's hard because you get these N of one stories. Pandora is the one that has resonated for years in this industry of they got 200 no's before they got a yes. And then they got a yes and yep. Pandora worked. Can right? and Canva, it was, Canva is another one. Yeah. Yep. And it was something that was worth working on. And we investors don't know. We're making a personal decision to say no. We're not making a like conclusive decision that you should not build this and this is not worth building. And I think it's up to the founder to hear the no's and either accept them, learn and iterate or fully dismiss them. And I think there's nothing wrong with fully dismissing them. I think that yeah. is a possibly correct conclusion and uh the ones who dismiss all the no's and go out and do it like all the more power to them Beezer, what do you think about from the lp vc perspective you say no a lot well i'll say the, um, the similarities are definitely there the the saying no all the time i think is the sadness of most investors what i was contemplating david when you were talking was um dave I don't know. No the Dave day. thing, I'm getting a no face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We rebranded. <laughs> we rebranded. It took me a long time to get that Twitter handle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's legit. It's hard. You've seen my Twitter handle. I failed on the, just getting Beezer. So now I have to have numbers. So I'm with you. Um, you know, I'm I pretty think, sure I could go on Twitter right now and get Nick Charles. That's probably true. I'm um, pretty sure that's up for grabs. Probably true. We should all redo. Um, 
Yeah, you know, no, on the LP but... side, I think it's less common that you get a chance to launch a whole new fund. And it's more, I think more, it's more the experience of, are you getting on or off the bus as an LP or maybe chasing the bus, right? Depending on where you are in the LP tech stack um, or preference stack. But, um, but it's rare. I mean, like Nick and I had a very different experience with notation, but that kind of, are you going to kill the dream? It's a little less so. I would say there was a little bit of that on the exiting if you have an LP who's a significant chunk of your fund and they decide for whatever reason not to re-up, then there is some definite moral hazard on that side. But um, it's a little different on the going in, which I really appreciate the empathy on that because it's, it's hard to tell people what they want to do is not attractive. Even if it's, you're just not doing biotech or whatever it is, it's not a, like, I'm just not, you know, I'm vegetarian, I'm just not eating the cow, right? <laughs> I, I had a question on my list, which is we were talking about kind of OG New York tech. Um, and my question for you, Tish, I can ask this question of myself too. And Beezer is like, we're 13 years later. Why, why are we all still doing this? Do we still, do we still enjoy it in the same ways? And maybe how, how has the job evolved for each of you over the last 13 years? I think this job's a privilege. Um, I think it's a, it's a, like what a amazing thing to get to spend your day on is, uh, I come back to what I sort of started with was meeting people with a dream, right? And, and being that we're early stage, we do pre-seed seed investing. You're meeting somebody at the beginning of a potential like life-changing in a cliche way, world-changing journey. And we get to join them on that, um, you know, course that they are embarking on. And it is, uh, it's special. I, I've always loved the internet more than technology. The internet's the thing that I yeah. find intellectually fascinating. It's what I grew up uh, in middle school, uh, falling in love with I, the idea that I get to do this as a career is uh, special. I think there are times when my job, the, the most interesting thing about my job, um, is that my job never changes. My job tomorrow is the same exact job as it was 13 years ago. So it's to find the next deal. There's a yep. growth in the job of the past deals and that they grow, the founders mature, their companies develop, you you get to evolve the relationship with that company, but the actual job is to make a new investment tomorrow. And that's fascinating because there are very few jobs where it's literally the same thing year after year, day after day, week after week. And I'm 13 years and we haven't changed our model. We're the exact same style investor we were 13 years ago. And so um, I think from, from your question standpoint, you know, is it fun? I actually don't think it's about being fun. I think it's about being consistent. And my job is to wake up, meet people, get excited about what they're doing more than excited about what I'm doing and say yes. And I think that's a privilege. So I, I'm good. I'm not going anywhere. So two thoughts. One is 
Yes, same thing. I've been in love with the early stage since day one. And unknown sort of dirty secret, although I talk about it sometimes, is that I started in venture in tech in 2000. So I get to be the old of the old. Um, and I always love the early stage because it's what Albert Wenger was recently on a podcast. And he said that technology creates possibility, which is the much more articulate way that I've always said, which is like, this is where the magic happens. And when you're coming in later stage, it's a different kind of investment. There's all your data you can crunch. There's all the statistics, there's all that stuff. But in the beginning, it's just seeing the world in a different way. And I've always been a huge sucker for that. And I've always thought the energy out of that is incredible. So even when the even when the day-to-day -day gets repetitive, because I will be the first person to say spending all day doing LPAs is not why LPs are in this, in this job, but it's a game to meet people like you and the passion that you guys have and what you see and then what goes through in the portfolio and the, the rethinking of the world every day. It's really cool. It's, I don't know. But I, I agree with you. If you don't really enjoy it, I think people should, you should only spend these kind of hours working if you're enjoying what you're doing. I don't know how people get up and spend a lot of time doing things they hate or, or just have no passion for. I don't understand that. Or at least I couldn't do it. Yeah, I, I still feel like, deeply connected to the founder journey, just as much so as I was uh, 10, 12 years ago. Um, I love the idea of like really partnering with founders. I know that sounds like a bullshit VC cliche, but like, and, and some of them lead to just like truly unique relationships. Like it's not like anything else that you would experience in the rest of your life. I also think about, and maybe, particularly recently, now that we have some like data across our first two funds, um, you have, we have 30 companies in a fund and a couple of those end up creating like truly life changing circumstances for the founders, both from a money perspective and a business perspective and a uh, personal perspective. And then you have like half or more 60% of those companies where the founders basically end up with nothing. And the, the delta between those two things is just so dramatic because everyone goes in taking the same amount of risk, like the same hope and dream, and you just have these outcomes that are so dramatically different. And I'm not sure exactly what my point is there other than just empathy for the risk that these people are taking and, and the, well, it gets the lost by it gets, that gets lost by every stakeholder other than the the relationship uh, holders, right? And so, um, for us at the early stage, you watch that failure, and that failure comes a lot of the time with emotional spirals, with psychological yep. spirals, with financial spirals, with um, identity identity spirals, and they get abstracted as you remove yourself from that by the media, which is now just like this shut down or this failed or, you know, this didn't work. Ha ha in this moment, right? Like they're sort of out there to get you. And then on the LP side, it's just math. And the LPs have no connectivity to that early stage founder who didn't get past eight people who didn't get past the seed route or who got from C to A to B and then failed. As the early stage investor, you get to see the emotional journey, the yep. you know the roller coaster. But the roller coaster sometimes goes up and then all the way down and never comes back up, and crashes. And that um, it's a lot. And by the way, by the way, even when it works, like 
the wealth that's generated, that's its own bizarre psychological, emotional journey that I've also seen people go through. And in many, in many cases lead to like real depression in the same way that failure does. Totally. That's and... actually a really common thing in YPO. I'm not a YPO person, um, but I have a number of friends who are, and they say that's a really big topic because it feels, I got lucky. It's like the whole imposter syndrome, right? It comes up a lot. And yep. it's, it's really hard. Yeah, I think our job and, and Nick, your point, right? The math is that the majority of people we invest with and are going to fail. And that's a lot of people's livelihoods that are going to yeah. go in a direction that they didn't go in thinking it would, even though the math was not in their favor to start. Um, but it's not math. It's it's a person's like livelihood. Yeah. And so I back to like, why do I enjoy this? There's a privilege. It's not about enjoyment. It's It's really a privilege to watch and be part of those um, tries. And I think for us, you know, 13 years in, uh, what's pretty interesting is that we get to uh, work with people whose thing didn't work the first time. And yeah, they tried, they tried hard. It didn't work. They fell and crashed and rebuilt and came back with, something else that they were excited about a lot of the time in a totally different space. And our portfolio is filled with second time founders who didn't work the first time. And they're some of our outliers uh, in terms mm. of growth the second time. So a lot of lessons learned and a lot of um, sort of picking up the the pieces and putting them back together in different ways. Um, and I think it's a, it's a fascinating um, cohort in our portfolio of founders that we backed the second time where their, their company didn't work the first time. Um, but we loved in our lingo how they ran the experiment. And we thought they yeah. uh, did it in a way that we are excited to see them try again. And uh, we feel like that's a really interesting founder archetype that we get excited to back. Beezer, do you see the same thing on the VC side? Like VCs that maybe had previous funds or tried a different strategy and like you back again. It's a, di no. it's a different rhythm because you don't, you don't tend to see the, I failed to start my comp I failed to start my fund. Would you please back me again? I learned a lot of lessons. You might have, um, as, Why as not though? because I don't think people would give them a second chance in that way. You definitely have the. Uh, as well, as much as we would welcome anyone who wants to go out and have like three X net funds, fund after fund after fund, the numbers will show you that, and we don't have all the numbers, of course, nobody does, but that it's unlikely that funds will have that kind of repetition of performance and you'll have some up funds and some down funds. And over time, when an LP looks at the amount of dollars in they have into a manager and the amount of dollars out, you look over a course of a series of funds. And it's definitely true that you hear GPs coming back and we welcome this when they're like, this did not work. And here's what we learned, right? Like our portfolio construction was off or we tried a, we tried a new type of company or we tried a new something else or we pushed geos or we pushed something or we failed to pick well for whatever reasons they failed to pick well. Um, and that lessens people, I think LPs really resonate with understanding, but I don't think you tend to get the, I have sunk a whole bunch of your money and now I want to start over again with somebody new. That's unless there's really a narrative around that, that's compelling. You don't tend to see that. It's also like, so, a, no one, so how about tiger? Uh, it's also an egregious 
feedback loop, right? Like, Correct. You, you don't yeah. know for like 15 years, right? Because you've right. seen so, uh, most yeah. funds don't produce until year 10. Like, right. So it's, it's, if that, if that, right? and, and yes. now we're, now we're pushing that even further as early stage investors yes. potentially. So it, um, and I think I so read in the you news, were, Tigers now, this is, I think it was in term sheet or Axios. I don't remember who yesterday or today that they have now changed their fund size again down to 5 billion. So, I mean, it's still a lot of money to be raised, but significantly feel, down feel to 12. Really, feel, really feeling for them. <laughs> no, yeah. The management how fees are, are really make, small. How are gonna, yeah, how are they going to make that work? Um, Tish, question for you. This is more tactical. Uh, you were an angel investor for a long time in New York. Uh, you and, and alongside your partner, Adam, chose to raise institutional funds for the first time, uh, I think maybe three years ago, something like that, three, four years ago. Um, why'd you do that? Yeah, um, we're a quirky story. We spent nine years investing without uh, significant or diversified LPs. It was uh, my uh, capital and we did it in a way that uh, looked like we were a, a seed fund. So we didn't try to position ourselves overly as an angel investor. We jumped back and forth in terms of uh, saying that when we needed to, to resonate with founders, but it was really um, a different style of firm building. Uh, Adam, Nimi, uh, our third partner and Greg um, as well. So we're four partners at Box Group. Um, in 2019, uh, Greg wasn't, Greg had, had, uh, was with us left. Uh, so right. when we decided to take on outside capital, it was three of us, uh, Nimi, Adam, and I. Um, it was a long time coming. We probably waited too long. Uh, we were undercapitalized during the first nine years. I think the first couple of years was us figuring out what we were doing. And then uh, we probably should have scaled a little bit differently um, looking back. But for me, I was very scared to take on other people's money before I knew if this would work. And right. we, run a, we run a different model. Seed investing takes a long time to figure out if you're okay at it. And the feedback loop is decoupled from today. So even if we were okay at it or good at it nine years ago, it has nothing to do with today. And so it was very hard to know when to develop the confidence to say, I'm comfortable uh, investing other people's money. I still, like, I don't want to, you know, I don't think about my job as being a venture capitalist. I think it's this industry and it comes with a bunch of, um, not like the wrong focus, but my job is to find people who have dreams and be part of their journey. And when you shift to this early stage mentality, it it's less finance and it's more art or some art, yeah. version of what we yeah. do. And so the idea of like being a VC has never been the, the calling for me. It's instead, you know, we want to invest in people's dreams and at the very beginning. And so what's the best way to do that? And for a long time, it felt like we had a way to do that that worked. Um, Today, I, I think we were a little late to take on outside capital. Um, so we scaled the business in 2019. We raised two funds, a seed fund and an opportunity fund, and we raised another set of funds in 2021. Uh, so I'm four years into the working with outsider 
part of, of my business. Um, and I love it. I, I think it's been, do you, I do. What parts? I, um, I feel more pressure. So I like that. Uh, I, I owe other people performance. I need to be great. And I think it's not that I didn't feel that already. I just, there's a lot of responsibility. And I think the partners we're fortunate enough to work with are doing so with the intention of taking money that we make and doing good things with it. So I feel a lot of responsibility for that. And I think the intellectual push of having outsiders question what you're doing and help you think through problems is refreshing um, and uh, invigorating. So I've, I feel lucky with the group that we've surrounded ourselves with. And um, I think my partners phrase it uh, more interestingly in that they say, we've always been investing someone else's money. Uh, so I appreciate that. Right. Uh, for me, uh, it was a change and it's uh, yeah. a positive change. Can I ask what the biggest surprise has been? Honestly, I went in pretty eyes wide open. Um, we don't, we were unwilling to compromise on who we were in the process. And so I think the first set of funds, it, it was about finding people that I don't know if they needed to believe, but they needed to not reject our story and not, uh, sort of reject our model. Um, I think the fundraising process is, I don't want to complain about it because that's not the, it's not the, the tone that makes sense. It's just like totally not transparent. Mm. Oh, totally. And, mm. Totally, totally. And it's in a way that makes, I get it. I understand it, but it doesn't make very much sense. And, um, what was the part that you thought should be more transparent that there's not a good argument for it being so opaque? The timelines, the, the, like, I'm good at reading the room. If somebody doesn't want to invest in our firm, I pick that up pretty quickly. But their job sometimes is to just keep talking and taking meetings. And my job is to probably do the same. And so you end up in this four, six, eight meetings in, but I don't think it's going to go anywhere. And I probably knew that the first time. And I think everybody should just say that. And I think there's some FOMO on both sides and I get it. Um, but I found the LPs that are very direct in each step of the process to be very um, valuable and We've had LPs pass in the middle of the first conversation because they don't like our model. And then you end up having a really productive conversation. Yeah. And uh, I appreciate that. So I think for- So let's, first let's, we, let's we talk came about into that this, just for a second. I'm still talking when you're cutting me off. <laughs> uh, I, uh, we, we came in with a nine-year track record, which most investors don't. And so I think we have this weird- starting spot, but um, I feel for first time fund managers because I don't think when they, A, getting access to LPs, like there's no, there's no list. There's like a mediocre list and it's mostly fund of funds 
and then the endowments and the foundations, but like family offices, like all the, the quirky LPs, there's not like a list of them. Yeah. And getting warm introductions, getting them to opt into your call is hard. And then when you get on that call, like their job is to basically say no to everybody. And you don't know that necessarily going in, but so it's a very harsh process. And I don't think it should be easy. I just think that the lack of directness in conversations uh, at times can be annoying. Yeah. And you said you weren't willing to compromise. What, what did you hear LPs asking for that you were like, yep, that's not us. We run well, a different I, model. I want to dig in. Yeah. I want to dig into that just for one second, because Tish runs a different model. I want you to talk about the model and then Beezer, I want to, I want to dig into a little bit why LPs maybe criticize wouldn't like that. Yeah. Our, uh, our, we don't focus on ownership. We are not concentrated. We don't take board seats and we don't lead. So everything an LP looks for, we don't do. Um, I'm not going to disagree. The gross majority of LPs will be like, yeah, yeah. but I would say the last two years has opened up. Um, because historically, it's been tougher for folks to produce large returns using that model. And I, there's obviously examples out there. I'm sure if we all like had, if it was perfect data, I'm sure we could find something. Or it's just going to be box group, right? Maybe maybe you're the N of I, one. I, I appreciate the other model. And I get why the other model, which is what's worked in venture, makes sense. If you can own 23% of a breakout company... That's a really good decision, but there's a very small number of companies that will produce outlier outcomes and owning a large chunk of those companies tends to be reserved for the top X number of funds in venture on a repeat basis and breaking into that top X number and call that X five, 10. It's not 30. It's somewhere between 10 and 20 probably at best, breaking into that with a competitive model that is a replica of your competitor, I think is a non-trivial assumption that every fund makes and says, I'm going to run the same model as everybody else. I'm just going to win deals because I have a different blog or I have a different podcast or I pitch founders differently or founders like me better. It's everybody runs that same model. But I, I think part of that Tish is because is LPs LPs. Yeah. LPs are like, this is how it's done. Correct. We're not going to give you money unless Correct. you do it this way. Yes. And so every VC but if you look at adventure returns that feedback a... and is like, this is how we do it. And this is how we're going to raise money. But I would say yeah. in the last I'm going to broad brushstrokes last two years. We've seen more models that emulate what you're talking about, David. And it's more in the syndicates and things like that. It's more the many companies, small pieces. And if you get enough large outcomes, that will move the dial. But shouldn't we ignore the past two years? I'm not saying whether we should or shouldn't. I'm just saying that, like, I think I think you may have been on the. I'll throw this idea out there. I think you were on the forefront of this. We do. I will I will own that we've had a fund in our past investing history that had more of your kind of model, but the denominator was much smaller and it the, then the number of outcomes changes, like the smaller your the smaller your fund size. So we did not have one that was as your size in the AUM. So that's another ball of wax. But 
I think LPs stretch their mind a bit over the last couple of years and thinking through what could be possible. And I, I don't want to say stretching your mind's a bad thing. I would say there was a lot of money goes, flowing into the into the environment, which raised well, a lot of ships, right? But I like I think the when everything goes up. I think when everything goes up, all the models look okay. Correct. And now that, but you're not. I don't think we're going to regress back to 1970 for venture capital just because we're hitting a, a rough patch, right? I think we're going to iterate on this, like the the syndicate model and the small bits. I, I just think there's some new ideas that have moved in. I mean, the solo GP idea was like crazy a decade ago. And now people are like, meh, yeah. okay. <laughs> we're okay. We're okay with where we live. We're not, we're yeah. not changing it. I think to your point, Nick, one of the other forcing functions is AUM. It's very hard to scale AUM in a model where like you're not going for concentration and ownership. It's hard to justify the math on one hand to LPs, and it's hard to get LPs to give you money to scale this style of a model. Um, and as a firm builder, scaling is important to, you know, building a business. So I think there's sort of two functions. One is a lot of people start with the, you know, smaller check distributed model, but that's not where they stop. What we did is we started here and stopped here. And I think that is a... So I have a question for you on that because you guys meet a ton of founders really early in the process. Um, and I've seen you guys be the first yes, the first check. Um, why not, why not lead, you know, why not lead those? I mean, you guys effectively do, right? So like, why, why not? You meet the company really early. They won't really want to work with you. You love them. Why not own 10, 15? 20% if you can. Um, we don't try to own a little, but we don't need to own a lot. Sure. And so what, what, how I like to phrase it is I never take our business model and we never put our business model in front of the founders. And so it's the agility within our investing style that is the foundation of, of the model. So if, it makes sense to make an investment where we get 10%, we'll do it, but we also are fine with 1% or less. It's not the goal. We don't go in and say, how do we own as little as possible? <laughs> like, like, oh no, yeah. you'll give us that much? No, no thanks. Um, <laughs> but if we need, like the nonsense to me is when founders are told how much a VC needs. Like, yeah. Call the bluff, right? Like show me your ownership in every investment that you made in the past year. And I promise you there is an example that is less than what you need. And by one, I mean a lot. And so like every VC has exceptions. That means there's not a rule. And so yeah. we just don't approach it like that. Our job is to work with a founder. If a founder wants to raise $5 million, I am not going to tell them, no, you should raise three and we want 22% of, like, we're, we work for founders. Our job is to support founders. And I don't care to make my business their problem. And I, yep. didn't, I didn't mean to dodge the LP question. I think when you're looking at your kind of fund size, the 250 million, my presumption is you'd rather have more five, 10, 15, $20 million checks than because of all of the reporting issues and the other things that you don't want like a billion 500 K checks. Like that just becomes really difficult. 
And as you get into LPs with bigger check size, you are going to run into more and more thinking, which is the, yes, but here's how history has shown us returns work. And if you're in the business of doing venture for the last 40 years, I mean, this is how the benchmarks, the Sequoias, right? So your, your educational practice and probably your DPI has all come from that, right? So yeah, I imagine you hit a lot of we got We got on the phone with a well-known uh, long you know, long-term LP in our first fundraise that I got walked in the door of and uh, from a top GP. And they said, you have to talk to them and they're great and blah, blah, blah. And I explained our model and the person responded very quickly, like, we don't believe in that. The data tells us that you are totally wrong. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> what do you want me to say? Like, my data is fine. <laughs> I'm going to live here. I don't need you to to do this. And that's, it's not dismissive. It's, it's that, yes, if you can fund benchmark, you should. And if you can fund USV, you should. And if you can fund one of the other 10 to 20, and maybe less, of those perfect concentrated models where they get access to the best companies year over year because brand matters in venture, you should give them as much money as you can. They're great. I would give Sequoia a lot of money. It's probably a great decision. But I don't know that I'm given firm 23 that runs that same model that loses to Sequoia every single time and talks about how we have different deal flow, we have proprietary deal flow. We are focused on a different, different geography or a different theme. Like I bet you Sequoia also knows about that city and I bet you <laughs> they know about that theme and I bet you they know about seed stage. I think you're right. I would agree with that bet. So like if you want to fund the 27th best concentrated firm in the country, let alone the 85th, that's great. I, so that's got, not what got, we're going to do. You got, you got, my understanding is you got some like pretty traditional, well-respected LPs to, to do box in the end. And what do you think got them over that hump, that, that pitch? Exactly. That, or that was already, the soundbite. That exact soundbite. Um, were they already prepared to think about doing something differently? Look, our our model is one that we are happy to spend as much time as a potential investor wants to spend talking about it. And uh, we are not spray and pray, and we are not an index fund. I think I would love to index the seed stage. That would be a wonderful asset to index. I can't. I can't see enough of the deals to be able to index. So if you're not going to be able to, you can't. And so we don't. So our model, like you said, is built on seeing a lot of deals and being highly selective amongst the founders that we meet. And so we see about 100 deals for every one we invest in, and we take about 40 meetings for every one we invest in. And so it's predicated on understanding that this model, despite the scale of it, is not a, a casual investment process. It's yeah. a very purposeful strategy. And I think the more time that we spend with potential investors, the more we're able to display thoughtfulness and purpose and strategy within how we've built our business and why. And I feel very fortunate that some people believe that and 
it's on us to give them the returns that they're looking for. We are not, the other thing that this model can't do is have a regression to the mean. So we have to be able to have, to what Beezer was saying, outlier funds in this model. If we can't and we're trying to promise consistency, we will fail. There is no way to do that. And so the model needs to have the same sort of variability as the other model has in terms of being able to produce outlier outcomes on the fund level. And so that's the math that we're able to walk through as well. And I think, again, if you spend the time and go through the process, hopefully we're able to, to show that um, we have an interesting strategy. We were talking last week uh, with Kanye Makubela at Kindred about how follow-on investment decisions change in this market, how the market used to be a weighing machine. Like there used to be some signal in tier one VCs doing the series A or series B. In the last couple of years, the weighing machine went away. Just everything was raising money at all times. I'm curious how maybe V1 of your growth investment business, uh, what the strategy was there in like the crazy heady times of 2021, and also maybe how that's changed uh, it, given the market today. Yeah, I think historically our C to A graduation rate is probably- Like do you guys that- just invest in every single pro rata? We invest in everything. We just say yes to everything. We talk. Um, <laughs> we're spray and pray. I was kidding. Uh, I lied. Um, no, we don't. Um, I, I think, you know, sort of the people who've been in this industry for a long time have math around this. But, you know, when founders start a company, they hear some you know, nonsensical number of like 99% of companies fail or 90, whatever the number is. It's not 50. It's, it's a lot. Right. And so over the past couple of years, 0% failed basically. And yeah. it's not that only it's that uh, the graduation rate from C to A, A to B historically, if you're like really good at getting that right as an early stage investor, it's like 70% from C to A and probably 50 to 70% from A to B. And from 2020 to, you know, half of 22, because the world didn't change until like April or May of last year. So people bucketed as 21, but it's really a longer period than that. Um, it was 100% from C to A and almost 100% from A to B. And yep. it's a different, it's a different market. Um, it's hard in that market to know anything because unless there's going to be a change in the outcome percentage that, you know, there's going to be bigger outcomes, which now we're seeing in the public markets or is a stretch, or there's going to be more outcomes, which now we're seeing in the IPO market is a stretch and the M&A market is a stretch. That inflation of, you know, capital into the early stage market is not changing the like outcomes, um, it's hard to figure out what to do. Um, but we're not going to know the sort of repercussions of this moment for probably three to 10 years. 
And I don't want to jump to conclusions in that I don't know what companies are going to make it through this and what companies aren't. I have confidence that some will not and some will. And I don't, I'm not smart enough or good enough to have a confidence interval bet on which ones. Like, I think yeah. I'm, I'm in this long enough to know that uh, I, I'm not going to get that perfect. So from a follow-on perspective, you have to be careful. Um, I think you guys also said last time that like initial dollars tend to have a better return than follow-on dollars. And right. um, I think that's probably right. But if you have a great company in your portfolio and you have an opportunity to buy more or maintain Parada, you should. And if it's not a great company, you shouldn't. It's yeah. Pretty bin- it's pretty binary. Right? Yeah. Like, but you need your, you need your, your, if you're, you're going to do follow on only if you can own 8% and it fits the model that you built, right? We have a lot of requirements. Um, <laughs> but like, like every best firm also has a portfolio of failure, right? Of zeros. And so the idea that you should easily follow on because top tier fund is leading the next round is not intellectually correct. Like yep. there is a lot of reasons why firms make decisions. And unless you're inside their room to understand all the variables that are going into their decision, just blanketly or blindly following on because somebody else is, is probably a bad way to allocate capital. But yet so many pitches for opportunity funds saying my rubric is XYZ valuation, top or bottom, and here is the list of investors. It's probably good enough. It's probably. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, like you're not, you're probably not wrong, but is that going to be like the outlier opportunity fund? Like Again, crystal balls in the in, shop. <laughs> if you can index Sequoia, you you should. It's it's a great framework, right? If I could write a check into every Sequoia company at their entry point and then follow on to every company they follow on to, it's going to be good. Well, then you'd be Sequoia. (laughs) (laughs) Which is good, which is really good. You want to be Sequoia. But that's like, that's the flawed part of it is like, if you're doing the bottom 25% of all the best firms deals, no good. Yeah. Yeah. Last question for you guys. Um, Tougher market. We're done. I was just getting started. (laughs) We can keep going. Um, Tougher market environment. I'm just curious, both Tish and Beezer, uh, like, what, is, what do you view the nature of your role is today with founders and with VCs, um, if anything? Like, what does that relationship look like now? What is the advice you're giving? I know it's, it's, it's a generalized question, but, like, how are you managing through this period with founders or the VCs that you, that you support? I've personally had more hard conversations in the last two quarters than I have maybe the previous eight years, 10 years of my venture career. And so I'm curious how you guys are taking the time to do that. I think it's similar on the LP side. I think any GP in our portfolio that wants to have a dig in, like what what's going on? How are we feeling? How are they feeling? We are welcome to it. Um, I would say that for most, though, the ask is, could you translate for me what's going on in the LP world? Because before people want to start fundraising, they want to get a sense. And then there's some pool of people 
who've been taking guidance from other GPs, and it's not always what an LP would think. So I'll throw out my favorite meme that's been very present recently, which is you have to raise in Q1 because if you don't raise in Q1, the LPs will be out of capital. And I, I understand the history for why people so say I'm going to go. I got to go right now. I know you got to go right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, and I understand that because a lot of LPs. Heard that no, no, it's as a meme, though. No, well, it's it's there's reality to every stereotype, right? And the on this one is a lot of LPs do look at their calendar and say what's coming up, and if you don't tell people that you're coming, they don't know to, to reserve even just um, even if it's in soft pencil, some concept of it. But that doesn't mean to say that people are. If you talk to people now and say we we need the money later, we're going to come back later. There isn't a world for that too, and it's really based on. It's a much more curated discussion with the LP and the GP as are they going to back you or not, which is not necessarily tied to it's October versus April. Like to the points you were making, David, if people decided, well, April's a good month for deploying, come in April, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that'd be an interesting, probably flawed, but you know, who knows? Maybe someone will get that right. Investing model is more about understanding your, your pacing and your need and the dialogue. And so there's just been a lot. I think there's some percentage of my time spent just having those conversations with folks or, to your point about the early stage world look better for longer, I think people have also not fully understood that for some set of LPs right now, there is a lot of budget pressure, be it denominator effect, be it NAV effect, be it both, be it public markets. And, and, and it's just, it's just not the way it was in 2021 or 2020. And it might be fine for some GPs, but I understand it's just very different and that there's been some lack of listening, I think. I think I think one of the hardest things, and this is both on the LP GP side for us and on the um, VC founder side, is decoupling short term and long term. So I'm building a long term business. I hope to do this for a long time as Box Group and as the strategy that we're running. And when we invest in a company, we hope it's a long term journey. And so trying to answer short term questions in context of long-term is really hard. So to me, when we're talking about macro, it's this short-term moment in time. Like the world changed. Is this the permanent state? Is it going to get worse? Is it going to get better? And when? And when is actually the key question because trying to time things is really hard when you don't know what the future brings. And so... Um, I found that to be challenging, right? Everybody on the company, like the VC to LP thing talks about like all of our companies have four years of runway. Well, if if the next four years are really bad, that ain't, sort of doesn't matter. And if the company's not good, that doesn't matter. So there's just a lot of hand-waving that goes into trying to explain uncertainty, which is what actually we're all experiencing in my mind. And so I don't have answers for companies when we talk to them. I have frameworks to try to operate in and I try to share those, their perspectives, they're my ideas, they're our observations as a firm, they're uh, what we're seeing in real time play out. But the idea that like the VC markets closed is wrong. There's frothy rounds happening at seed a lot at A, a lot at B, less, and at C, less, and at D, a lot less. But there's froth on every part of the stack still. And froth is a relative term because if the company that raises a 
frothy round turns out to be a great company. It was a cheap investment. So that's okay. And there's also, again, this prolonged death and failure. So there are a lot of companies that are funded today that will not succeed. And that hasn't played out yet. And that's probably not going to play out till the second half of this year into the entirety of next year into the first half of 25. Because if you take 21 and early 22 and assume that every company that could have raised 18 to 24 months extension on top of their 18 to 24 months of runway, you're pushing the end of the runway out till at least 24, if not 25. So yeah, the reckoning hasn't happened yet. So or it'll just happen need, kind of slow. slow yeah. And, and also no one really cares sometimes about like non-well-known companies not succeeding. So you actually don't see it, feel it outside of the inside of the portfolio uh, side of things, right? It's not going to make the media. Hey, um, can so I ask you a question on that? Yeah. Are you seeing folks looking for homes in advance? Like little acquisitions. No, no, no one's buying. No one's buying anything. No one's buying something. Everybody just no. laid people off. So, well, only in the tech world. The jobs report that just came out was. It so reminds me of two thousand and one, where this. I didn't know anybody in tech who still had a job. Right, we were all sort of like, every day is a Friday. Right, none of us have jobs, um, and the rest of the economy was like, that's okay, cool. We we got you. We're we're going to go do our thing, and we're not slowing down. And it. I don't, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not an economist. I don't know, I but there's wish, a similarity so to that. But back to short-term, long-term, right? Like the public markets have rewarded short-term for so long now. And the way activist hedge funds work and the way that um, sort of public market investors work is, is quarterly earnings driven. And so taking a long-term investment in sort of modernizing old companies was a really nice talking point in 2015 that VCs made when they were trying to explain how their wide portfolio is going to get acquired by all the old companies that needed to modernize. I, I can't wait for that to happen. I, we have a lot of great remember, companies. Would... Remember when uh, all you needed to do was build a mobile app and get acquired yeah. by Yahoo? Sounds great. Um, <laughs> those were the days. Those were the days. Those were the salad days. Those were the days. I, I, yeah. do, I do believe at some point in my career, M&A will be a massive change in terms of the volume and the appetite for M&A. I think valuations on the tech side were inflated and the public markets were punishing in terms of risk. And that's a really big disconnect in terms of the ability to do M&A outside of the tech world. And then you saw the government regulate uh, unnecessarily the big tech companies to prevent them from buying anything. And so that slowed down M&A. And then the other thing that happened was aqua hires as a category were sort of underwhelming. And yeah. the modern growth companies on their way up bought a handful of companies, whereas their predecessors bought dozens of companies. And so if you look back at M&A at Google or Facebook or Yahoo or Microsoft yeah. or Amazon on their way up, it was a Twitter. Even. Lots of companies were acquired by those companies on their way up, not just when they were mature. And then if you look at the next wave Coin, of companies. Coinbase, Coinbase was maybe an except or similar. In but that. Coinbase they, acquired. They, they bought a lot of companies. companies. They, but they bought five, seven, ten companies, and, which and is a lot of acquires and a lot of acquires. but it's more it's more than others. And then there's, yeah. you know, if you look at Pinterest or, or Uber or 
you know, a handful of others, it was less and then less and less. And so yeah. people are able to hire more. They build internally versus buy because that was probably the right equation anyway. Um, so I don't know where this question started, but uh, M&A. Where, where, okay, we were yeah. supposed to stop, but I have one final one is why we haven't seen any m and in, in the venture business. I'm for now. Um, uh, <laughs> like, take it. Take box yeah. group. I'm going to run it forever. But if there's a, if there's a good price, take Let me check my email. It's um, hard. It's really, it's really structurally hard. I mean, you've got LPs, you've got portfolio companies. How do you figure out valuation? I mean, I think you, you see the, um, the variance of the world, right? You see mergers of people, but it's, it's really hard. I would have expected all these solo GP funds, right? Like you said, there's tons of solo GP funds in the market now. And Andreessen, you know, Sequoia, Tiger being like, hey, why don't we tuck you into this thing? And you can like maybe still do some of your solo GP stuff, early stage stuff, but like, why don't we tuck you into the platform? Like, why didn't we see enough? Why didn't we see more of that? What? There's well, why would they? There's a math mismatch. If you just run numbers, it's really complicated to get, even outside of the portfolio stuff, if you just, if you're running a fund of, of 40, $50 million versus a job, it's a, mm. it's a pretty yeah. hard mismatch. It would yeah. probably be easier to convince someone to join their platform and then manage out their portfolio because, right. right? I think it's, I've always, I've long wanted to see more small funds like, just come don't raise, don't. Don't, Don't do fund, fund X, yeah. Just and come. We'll just come onto our platform. You can manage, yeah. and you can manage your Partner, portfolio. Partnerships out. are complicated, right? Like, I feel blessed, and I like that word. Feels authentic. Um, that hashtag blessed. Well, hashtag exactly. blessed in the, in the show notes. Thank you. Um, but but I've been working with my partners for a long time. Adam and I have been working together thirteen years. Nimi for eight years, and Greg for eight years minus two years. It's it's a very great relationship we've been able to build because there is alignment on a lot of things that are really complicated to get alignment on. And I don't think that's easy. I think it's easier when you're a big firm to add people into a built-in strategy. And that's the consolidation or the sort of growth of the big firms that makes sense. But I think when you're a small organization, you know, solo GPs coming together, there's just not an easy way to find that alignment on all the soft things, let alone the hard things. And um, I, I, I would not, I don't want to be a solo GP. It's one of the reasons we took outside capital is that it allows us to work together, all of us for hopefully a long time, because we were able to find that alignment and a desire to build the business together. And um, I think, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't come without challenges. There's hard conversations internally that are always going to happen. And when the market turns, it's a different set of conversations and when every deal's great. Um, but I, I think, um, I don't know if you've ever worked at a big company or, or an established company, there's a lot of politics and complexity that comes with that. And I think as you start to go from one to two to four to eight to 12, it each step of the way, each doubling is at the company side, it replicates itself at the firm side too. So I think, um, I don't know. 
I think there's there's going to be a lot of I think there will be a lot of changes in venture over the coming years and that some firms will get smaller. Some people will leave. Performance will now be something that is different amongst people because not every company is is getting funded at crazy valuations. And so I think um, you will see changes over the five, 10 years to come in the venture landscape that are uh, non-trivial, but I don't know what they look like. I appreciate you, Dave. I do. I think you built something special with Box Group. I appreciate your first no, even many years ago. And, um, and this was, this was really fun. So thank you. Thank you for doing it. Was it funny enough? Thank you for having me. No, it wasn't funny. Honestly. <laughs> That's little, okay. Maybe we should serious. put some jokes in the, like, you know, the script. like we can run some jokes underneath it or in the reader notes or something. If you've got some good jokes. Send them in. Just a, a yeah. Yeah, emoji your, on your top your of our faces. Like, yeah. Yeah, I don't have any good funny jokes. My son will tell you I, I, I don't have any. So it's on you, David. Bring bring the funny. We have to wait for the up market to be funny, oh. right? We're in a down market. That's this true. Is like, That's true. It's, it's not, not the time. Time. Like, it's not read the, time the room. Read the room. Not like, the time for jokes. Yeah, it's, it's not. It's inappropriate. Uh, no, you need, you need humor to get through the dark days. I'm going to take the other side of that. Good luck. All right. I'll be out there alone. <laughs> All right, now that's funny. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye.